think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 67 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 68th episode, tragically, because this has been one of the most lit weeks in Canadian politics we've had in a very long time. My name is Laurent Carboneau. Do we have, like, a special theme song for, like, special super serious episodes? I could just put in a bunch of air horns into the sort of... I was just thinking some more dramatic lead-in music. I, I could always just go back to Gustav Holtz, The Planets... Just what I often do <laughs> if I need to add some drama. Um, I'm Aitzen Randville, and this is the SNC Live Alliance special. Indeed it is. So, yeah, this has been... Uh, the, the nation woke up Thursday morning to a uh, an explosive front-page story in the Globe and Mail about how uh, the PMO may have pressured uh, former uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould um, to direct... Direct the director of public prosecutions to negotiate a uh, what's the term again deferred prosecution agreement thank yes. you hereafter you referred to agreement. as a dpa as a dpa uh with snc lavalin the embattled and controversial uh <laughs> construction and engineering <laughs> firm though that's pretty good newspaper speak right embattled and controversial I yeah I, I think i think you nailed it um so yeah, this seems to have kicked off uh, quite a quite a kerfuffle because uh, ostensibly the prime minister is not supposed to do that. Uh, <laughs> you're not supposed to tell, uh, or you're not supposed to. You, you, so okay, why don't we just like yeah yeah let's just I, we, get right we, into we've it. We've got we've got the the outline. We're, yeah. we're going to go through it. We're not going to get off track in the yeah. first in the first two minutes. Yeah, that would have been a new record for us. Um, so I mean, you've alluded to a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, let let's sort of take it one piece by piece. Though. Piece by piece, starting with I think the historical basis of this, which is perhaps what has been least properly covered um, in much of the reporting as. I think a lot of it started a little too early. Um, so, I mean, there's the piece about SNC-Lavalin's history, and we'll, we'll do that in a minute. But let, let's start actually with the history of Canada's integrity framework. Okay. Um, now called the integrity regime. Good. Um, so this is something... I thought we only called them regimes if we didn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, depend, depending on who you are, you, you might consider this uh, a regime. I see. So... Uh, this is something would SNC-Lavalin for instance considered a regime <laughs> they certainly would though they actually have no problem with the other ones that we would often consider regimes I suppose <laughs> <Yeah>. but... <laughs> very, very regime friendly company yes um, so I don't know if you'll recall this but in 2012 it was the Harper government I, I, I was in school at the time and did not care about politics um, so I do not recall this so that, carry on. That, that was your right made quite a stir with their introduction of the integrity framework um, which included provisions that I think scared a lot of companies um, Which is funny because it's the conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, this this is truly a point of differentiation, um, but it scared a lot of companies um, because the uh, integrity framework included rules around if you were found guilty of various or not even found guilty at that point, um, but charged with certain crimes, you would not be able to compete for t- uh, you'd receive a ten year ineligibility period for government contracts. Um, Eventually, this was modified uh, a few years later uh, in response to concerns raised by companies. There were a lot of companies, not just SNC, um, who sort of lobbied the government over this and said a lot of arguments that you're going to hear through, throughout this recording. Um, but effectively, that uh, a lot of these things are the cost of doing business 
um, in various developing countries across the world. The Neil of Arabia argument. Um, we can't be, or we should not be held responsible for what perhaps one bad actor in some global subsidiary is doing somewhere else. Um, so a lot of the multinationals were very concerned that it would open them up to, you know, a, a significant liability um, where perhaps they did not have uh, as much control as they would like. Yeah. So uh, eventually the integrity uh, framework was changed to the integrity regime. And one, one of the changes that was introduced along the way was a half measure in the eyes of SNC-Lavalon, which was... Okay, we're, we're just going to establish <laughs> this right away because we, we talked about this before we started recording. Lavalin. 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 It's not an elf. <laughs> Lavalon. Was it enabled them to continue pursuing contracts um, insofar as they weren't uh, found guilty of charges. Sure. So if they were charged, it's like we're going to, it's before the courts as the, the it, Exactly. Goes. So yeah. it, it allowed them, well, they were charged, which I mean, a lot of these uh, alleged uh, criminal activities happened in the yeah. early 2000s. Um, so a lot of this has been pending for a very long time. Well, and I think it's also important to note that, like, innocent until proven guilty is actually yes. a genuinely important part of our legal system and that there is, like, a, a fairly solid rationale for, like, not punishing people for being charged. Yes. Uh, I think I can I can sort of see my way to that without too much difficulty. Sure. Yeah. So, so it was amended to account for that. Um, and then, obviously, the next step along the way is the introduction of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement sure. itself. Um, which is sort of the next step there where it says, you've been charged, we're going to court, let me give you an off-ramp. Yeah. Um, and that off-ramp consists essentially of setting aside the charges um, as you cooperate with the government and sort of remediate um, your, your crime, so to speak. Yes, and there is, like, it's not just, people sort of take this as a fine and a handshake and you walk away, which is it is not. Like, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, it usually involves, like, substantial internal reorganization uh which is sort of speak for a lot of the the executives go do something else um and then there's like monitoring for quite a while uh so it's not it's not just like you you pay a a bundle of cash and get keep doing what you're doing there there are substantial obligations of course the 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 devil's always in the enforcement on these kinds of things but there you go and there's there's one other detail i would note that even if you so let's game out the worst case here for uh snc um they don't get the deferred prosecution they get the ineligibility uh defined under the integrity regime there is still options for administrative settlements and deferrals and uh sort of outs provided under the regime uh once they are convicted of the crimes I see. Um, so it, it's not as as much the end of the line as many in the media have been portraying it. To, I mean, it would certainly still be a large blow and there's still a great deal of uncertainty as opposed to just wiping uh, away much of the concern beforehand. Um, but you still have to go through the, the criminal proceedings. It still drags on. It still has that uncertainty. And then you're really more at the mercy of the government than if you strike the bargain beforehand rather than after. Yeah. Um, so that's our, our brief history of it. I'm sure some lawyers will be uh, wrinkling their brows at, at several points along there, um, just in terms of some of the legal terminology used. Um, but I'll throw it over to you for a brief history of the, the proverbial sins of SNC-Lavalin. So I, I'm not going to be able to give it a hyper, hyper detailed timeline or anything, but it's suffice to say that, I, and actually just to add, to begin with, I think the earliest that I can think of 
is um, actually this just came out today, reported in La Presse, I think, uh, that there was skullduggery and fraud, allegedly, over uh, the Jacques Cartier br- Bridge in Montreal. Yeah, maintenance uh, contracts. Yeah, from 2000 to 2003, that now actually the Quebec public prosecutor is going after them, interestingly. Um, so that's the earliest chronologically I can think of. Um, afterwards, there was, they had a very prominent role uh, in the Charbonneau Commission, uh, the sort of construction inquiry that the province of Quebec had once again uh, into corruption in the construction industry there. Um, so they, if you Google, if you uh, control F, SNC, Lavalin through the Charbonneau Commission reports, uh, they, they show up a lot. Uh, there was an illegal political financing scheme that operated from 2004 to 2011. Uh, where the company basically um, produced fraudulent expense reports where people would basically donate to the liberals and conservatives, though it has to be said about 90% to the liberals. Yeah, I think um, the amount to conservatives was in the range of less than $10,000. Yeah, it was really like 90 95% to the liberals, and it was yeah. six-figure six kind of numbers we're talking about. Um, and yeah, so that they would, they would make those donations, the company would then reimburse them for a non-existent expense. So essentially it was deemed that this was an illegal donation of by course. the company, which you, it is. It, you, it unequivocally was. With the ban on union and corporate yes. donations, you cannot have a corporate a corporation or union reimbursing an individual for... Yeah, no, it, it is just... Political donations. It is not, not what is done, uh, or it may have been, I guess. But uh, So that was another thing. And also uh, they had some skullduggery once again around contracts in Cambodia and Bangladesh that led them to being banned for 10 years from contracts uh, in which the World Bank is involved. Uh, which is actually the longest ban the World Bank has ever given out. Uh, and they have given, I think, quite a few, actually, in their day, because they, they, they're the World Bank. They've kind of seen it all. Uh, and then there was the Libya situation, which is kind of the operative one now, uh, where there was sort of the kind of what seems to be the standard, allegedly, fraud and embezzlement and uh, bribery. Um, so up to $50 million in bribes paid in, in Muammar Gaddafi's Libya. Uh which is the regime par excellence, really, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they just, yeah, I think you get a, the sense of the flavor of it. There was also actually uh, another scandal more cl- closer to home. McGill Montreal, Hospital. Again, the McGill yeah. Hospital, where they uh, they had an executive plead guilty to substantial bribery charges there as well. Um, so, which, which recalls Arthur Porter, if anyone is... Yes. Uh, Keeping keeping track at home. Yes, indeed. And that, was, uh, that actually was a kind of... That was a pretty serious moment in the, the Harper years um, that ended up... It didn't amount to much in the end, but it was uh, it was fairly serious. And also Arthur Porter indirectly almost uh, brought down Philippe Couillard's government because, or kept them from winning an election because he was uh, close personal friends with Philippe Couillard, as I recall. Yeah, so Former I mean... Former Quebec Premier Philippe Couillard for anyone who doesn't remember six months ago. Which, fair enough, it's been a long six months. All, all of this is to say that SNC certainly has among the most colored histories in... Controversial can- and embattled. In, in, in Canada, if not the world, when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and construction, like, I, I don't think anybody's under any illusions that construction is a business where people keep, really keep their noses clean. Like, it is, it is sort of proverbially a... A messy business with a lot of, of sharp elbows. But yes, SNC does seem to make the news quite a bit. Um, so as all of this happening, progressively SNC is getting caught by the World Bank, the RCMP, the, all sorts of different institutions. So they, they don't have the best track record of 
of staying above the fray legally. Um, and they, at some point along the way, they, they instituted sort of an attempt to turn it around, uh, replacing board members, swapping out their CEO. They, they eventually sort of went to the top of sort of Canada's ethical ladder, yeah. putting Kevin Lynch, a retired clerk of the Privy Council, in. Um, and quite a uh, impressive clerk. Well, well, we'll come back to that. I think that has significance beyond. It, it, it does. It does. But in insofar as we're talking about it right now, it, t- it speaks to their effort, SNC's efforts to essentially clean up its act. Yeah, I, yeah. And we're s- saying also just in the last couple of months that they have had three guilty pleas, I believe, from senior executives and former senior executives. Mm. I think a, a vice, pre- or perhaps just two, a, pre- a vice president and a CEO. So, on, uh, on the McGill Hospital thing. Yeah, un, un, undoubtedly. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they have obviously tried to turn things around. So, I think you will see, particularly in Quebec media, a bit of a ship of Theseus um, argument, which is, if it's... Did you, did you just learn that one today? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm acquainted with my Greek mythology. Okay. Um, which is to say that if a company is really just a shell, right... Like there, there is, if it's not a family owned company, if it's a publicly traded company, if you swap out the board of directors, uh, and, and any of the executives yeah. and any of the staff lower down, like at what point is this still the same company? Um, obviously there's the corporate culture that you have to weed out as well in order yeah. to really change the behavior of a company. Um, but that's part of, I think, uh, SNC's argument here is that they've done so. is to say we, we are a new ship. Yes. I mean, we, obviously we are not the same ship. It is worth saying that. Of course, they would say that. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, that, yes, I'm, I'm presenting it, it that is, as that. Like, yeah. That is their argument. Yes. So we can we can have a discussion as to whether or not we believe um, to to what extent a corporation should be held liable for the behavior of its executives, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, deferred prosecution agreements. Take me away. Ex- okay. Explain what these are. So deferred prosecution agreements are a relatively newfangled legal device. In that they they have they exist in other countries but have not existed in those countries for a super long time in most cases. Sure. And as I alluded to earlier, there are agreements where instead, or actually, as as you kind of also explained earlier, there there are agreements where instead of a a costly and lengthy legal battle, which the government of course may lose uh, at the end of the day, uh, prosecutors basically it's a plea bargain more or less for for corporate crimes, uh, where you you sort of you know you more or less plead guilty. You don't technically but you more or less plead guilty you sort of it's, it's like i guess a restorative justice spin on a plea bargain i think is a and as we alluded there, there's sort of reparations paid there are people sort of packaged off and sent elsewhere uh and there is a lengthy period of monitoring and reform uh that prosecutors sort of supervise um so it, it's it's a fairly thoroughgoing kind of thing and, and i think a lot of people have have gotten like I understand the impulse to look at this and say it's bad to let you know white collar criminals off, and I kind of like I sympathize with the the emotion and sort of sympathies that are animating that. I do think there's something to be said for, um, like sometimes you don't necessarily need to throw the book at someone, and like this would work, and I can see situations where this is fine. I think it's a conversation worth having, uh. However, I think, and this sort of shades into the next thing, is that we actually didn't really have that conversation as a country because the legislation that enables this, which is only, which is very new because it was last year's Budget Implementation Act. So instead of having a sort of discussion in its own piece of legislation about the merits and demerits of this kind of agreement in various kinds of situations, this is on page 500 of 900 in the BIA. 
uh, which we covered for, for other reasons and other elements of it. Um, and, you know, went through uh, this element, went through the Justice Committee and was remarked upon. And there was some uh, discomfort expressed, but ultimately went through because it was the Budget Implementation Act and it, those pass. Um, so that, I think, is another wrinkle here that is very significant because, and leaving aside the sort of scandal elements of this whole thing and whether, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould would have been willing to sign off on that piece of legislation in her role as Justice Minister, it did sort of, I think they're finding themselves in a worse spot now because we didn't have a conversation about whether Canadians think they want deferred prosecution agreements to be part of their justice system. So I, I, I tend to agree with all of that. Um, I, I will amount a tiny, tiny defense of the buried in the budget bill, um, which, which is a common thing. But um, for Though this government did say they would end that. They, they did. It's always worth, like, I know people are cynical about this kind of thing, but like, it really is like this. They really like people forget how optimistic and happy people were when they won and how much they were really promising, as the website said, real change. <laughs> And how much that has been very disappointing on many scores, um, in not least, you know, people still bemoan electoral reform. This, I think, the, the omnibus, legis omnibus legislation was something they railed against when they were in opposition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, you know, you've, you've heard us talk before, so you know our gripes, but like, it is dis another disappointment here. Yes, yes, but that that is not that is not where I was going. No, I figured it wasn't. Um, j just to say, um, so I was, I was looking into the the BIA uh, to find where where the text of this amendment was, and it comes up in two places. Uh, I mean, the actual text you you rightly point out is on page whatever whatever five hundred something of a five hundred whatever odd page bill. Yes. Um, but there is at the start of most, if not all legislation, a, what does this, uh, legislation do summary pages. Yes. And while it's a $500, uh, not a $500, <laughs> five, a 500 plus page it's bill, more than that. um, that covers several pages worth of text, but it, it, it is actually included yeah. in the legislative summary of the bill. It's, it's the very last point and it makes reference to the creation of, uh, amendments of the criminal code to create deferred prosecution agreements. Yes. So it's not. I, I just no, want to no, illustrate. I, yeah, that's entirely. Yeah. I just want to illustrate for people who don't read um, bills on a regular basis, like perhaps you or I, what sort of constitutes buried in it. Yeah, but so, I think it is worth saying that, like, basically, three hundred MPs didn't catch this, right? Uh, because, like, it it may seem ridiculous, but like opposition. MPs, whose job it is to scrutinize the, the you know, conduct and spending of the government, are really poorly equipped to do that job in a lot of ways. Like you're, it's... you're right. And the story of how it was caught um, by, I, I think, anyone and, and was essentially noted for the first time, um, at least uh, on Parliament Hill, was uh, a remark from a justice official uh, late into scrutiny of BIA mm -hmm. um, by MPs and... Uh, one of the justice officials made passing reference to it, and the MP sort of poked and prodded until yes. they, yeah, there was and, a and, and they were yeah, like, so. "Oh, why is this with us? Can we trosh this off to uh, legal affairs committee?" Yes, um, which ultimately did not. Well, happen. interestingly, this is like one of those reform package elements that the Senate was looking at was the ability to hive off elements of a government bill and consider them separately. 
uh, which was not done in this case. Uh, but th this, if anything, would have been the case for that kind of sober second thought of like, wait a minute, where did this come from? And uh, sort of sending it back to the house for more scrutiny or something would have been, I think, a, a good use of that sort of suite of powers. Okay, so that covers, I, I think for the most part, I, I did like the uh, comparison to restorative justice. I think um, that, th I think there's validity in that comparison. Yeah, and you know, I, I think no one who like gets mad at these things is angry about the concept of restorative justice. It's just that like, why is it that only white collar criminals get restorative justice options, well, well, it's, right? It's, it's, it's like... not though, because that's why restorative justice is a part of the criminal code. It's not Let's let's agree that it's it's not a hugely commonly used portion of the criminal code for most offenses. Neither are deferred prosecution well, agreements. That's because they were introduced six months ago. <laughs> this would have been the first one. And you know, actually, I think let's talk a little bit about uh, the prosecutor's decision on this because I think. Well, okay, you, you got it. Sorry, yes. That, yeah. that, let, let me do my next point, and then we'll talk about sure. the, the prosecutor's decision. Um, because one one of the points that comes up time and time again in media is sort of the assumption that. SNC is uh, effectively a shoe-in for uh, qualification for a deferred yes. prosecution agreement. Well, because they, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so many pieces to the story, really. Yes. I, I mean, it, it is very complex, but that, that's why I've pulled up the how to qualify for remediation agreement from the Budget Implementation Act, mm -hmm. um, which says, the prosecutors may enter into negotiations for a remediation agreement with an organization alleged to have committed an offense if the following conditions are met. A, the prosecutors of the opinion that there are reasonable prospects of conviction with respect to the offense. B, the prosecutors of the opinion that the act or omission that forms the basis of the offense did not cause and was not likely to have caused serious bodily harm or death or injury to national defense, national security, etc. Um, C, the prosecutors of the opinion that negotiating the agreement is in the public interest and... Uh, appropriate in the circumstances, and the Attorney General has consented to the negotiation. And then it goes on to list factors to consider. The, this is really the thrust of where I was going. Uh, the prosecutors must consider the following factors. The circumstances in which the act or omission forms the basis of, it continues, but uh, the nature of gravity, uh, the degree of involvement of senior officers of the organization in the act or omission, whether the organization has taken disciplinary action, uh, including termination of employment against any person involved in the act, mm -hmm. uh, whether the organization has made reparations or taken other measures to remedy the harm caused, whether the organization has identified or expressed a willingness to identify any persons involved in the wrongdoing, and so on and so forth, it, it continues. Um, but all of this is to say that this starts to look a lot more like there is a burden on the company to clean up their act before they are eligible for consideration for a deferred yeah. prosecution agreement. And that is where the ship of uh, Theseus. Theseus comes in is, did they do this or didn't they do this? I mean, this? It's from what you read of it, it sounds like they've done some of those things in that some of the executives are now gone. It does sound like they have, uh, well, actually, that's pretty much it. Because, I mean, I don't, to my knowledge, there's been no attempt at reparations or anything similar to that. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, that really does sound like the only one that they've satisfied, which they, they do genuinely seem to have gotten rid of a lot of senior people. Um, but I can see why this was not like an automatic grant. Like, it sounds like they, and especially, it's worth saying, right? Like, this would have been the first, I can see from the stance of the public prosecutor that you, you have a good case, right? And then this new law comes in. 
and the person on the other side of the bench is like one of Canada's most notorious sort of corporate wrongdoers, allegedly. Um, and I can see why you don't want to throw it away, right? Yeah, like, you, you I can spent... see from your prosecutorial standpoint, you're like, no, you know what? Like, I think I got this. And you've spent forever putting a case together. Yeah, no, I can, I can, de- and like, look, lawyers, you're, you're all vain. I'm sorry, you are, but like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, if they spent all this time and energy putting together that case, they don't want to throw it away. Like, fair enough. They have professional pride, and uh, that, that's a good thing about them. But I can see why, like, their interest was not in just making this go go away quietly. They want to make their case and they want to win. Like, I get it. So, so I mean, the, the common... I, I have an interesting wrinkle to add. The common argument for the Deferred Prosecution Agreement isn't... Um, I mean, that that you're seeing in media and you're, you'll see on the news will often be referenced to the 9,000 jobs or 5,000 jobs or... 9,000! <laughs> don't even. <laughs> however, however many jobs it is, uh, the SNC Lavalon is, is believed to represent in Canada, and obviously they work on major infrastructure did you, did you projects. Lavalon on me again? God damn it, dude! <laughs> <laughs> All across Canada. Um, but there is a factors not to consider part of this, and it says, despite paragraph two, the one that I was effectively yes. reading a minute ago, um, the prosecutor must not consider the national economic interest the potential effect on relations with a state other than Canada or the identity of the organization or individual involved. Okay. So it basically says SNC cannot make, or the prosecutor... Cannot or, consider the jobs. Cannot consider the jobs element. Which is it. probably for the best, right? Like, Because then you really do run into a too-big-to-jail kind of situation where you, that's, like, you, need the, you need the justice system to kind of operate a little more blindly than that. It's just I, I actually I I genuinely just find it a little weird. You're you're right um, that it, it does help prevent the too big to jail problem, but when considering if something is in a pub in the public interest, yeah, and I think this is the reason why so many uh, people have defaulted to this: the jobs impact of thousands of other people, yeah, um, who are presumably innocent of any of this wrongdoing and their their economic well being certainly seems like it should be a consideration. I mean, the, the core conceit of our justice system is that justice is blind. And like I, I myself have said on this very podcast that perhaps justice should be a little more political. And like I, I don't think that that's wrong. I do think that we need to very... Like, and I, I understand the argument you're making, right? I get the too big to jail, uh, the appeal of too big to jail. Like, I, I understand it. It makes sense, right? Because you don't want innocent people to be punished for wrongdoing that they had no part in. I think that's, like, a reasonable impulse. Uh, I just think you have to be very, very careful about when and where that impulse takes over. And I think shielding the prosecutor from that impulse is a good one. However, and this is something we haven't touched yet, is that there is an off-ramp for this, which is that the Attorney General and Minister of Justice can formally instruct... Um, the Office of the Public Prosecutor to enter into one of these negotiations. And this decision has to be made public through the Canada Gazette, uh, but it can happen. So if if this political override needs to be made, if, if there's truly a political determination made that some somebody is, a company is too big to jail, then a minister, can, the minister can say, I, you know, you're doing a remediation agreement and here are my formal instructions to that effect. And here they are published for all to see and we can have that political argument about this. Uh, it's. I don't necessarily think that it's the prosecutor's role to make that call. I'm glad that it's in the minister's hands. 
and like that there is a clear chain of accountability. It's actually a good system. It's just that here there appears to have backfired or not worked well because uh, we haven't really even talked about kind of the core of the scandal yet because we've been talking about the, the elements of it that I think are have been a little undercovered at the expense of the, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the steak and a bit less about the sizzle here. And I think that's a good thing, but the sizzle is kind of like the problem here. So we should probably we're we're getting to we're the, getting to the sizzle. The sizzle is the the next point <laughs> on the agenda uh, under the the title of Shawcross Doctrine. Indeed, and do you want me to read that for our our lovely listeners? Yeah, it's it's only a couple paragraphs long, but it is uh, from a speech of Lord Shawcross once upon a time. Okay, and, and you're you're really missing. Well, actually, at the time he was merely Sir Hartley Shawcross. <laughs> Uh, and he said this in 1951. He later was, was made Lord Shawcross. But anyway, so what he said in 1951 uh, in describing the proper relationship between the Attorney General and Cabinet colleagues. I'm not going to do a British accent. Sorry, I was kind of mulling it Shame. for a second there. I, I was really it's, hoping It's, it's going it. to give out too soon. It's too long. Anyway, I think the true doctrine is that it is the duty of an Attorney General in deciding whether or not to authorize the prosecution to acquaint him or herself with all the relevant facts, including, for instance, the effect which the prosecution, successful or unsuccessful as the case may be, would have upon public morale and order, and with any other considerations affecting public policy. In order so to inform himself, he may, or she may, although I do not think he or she is obliged to, consult with any of his colleagues in the government, and indeed, as Lord Simon, who I'm not familiar with, once said... <laughs> I love, would, love Lord Simon, my top, in, top ten. He would in some cases be a fool if he did not. On the other hand, the assistance of his colleagues is confined to informing him of particular considerations which might affect his own decision, and does not consist, and must not consist, in telling him what the decision ought to be. The responsibility for the eventual decision rests with the Attorney General, and he is not to be put, and is not put, under pressure by his colleagues in the matter. Nor, of course, can the Attorney General shift his responsibility for making the decision onto the shoulders of his colleagues. If political considerations, which, in the broad sense that I have indicated, affect government in the abstract arise, it is the Attorney General applying his judicial mind who has to be the sole judge of those considerations. So, what I was just talking about in the sense that, like, there is a political avenue here is that it is really incumbent upon the Justice Minister slash Attorney General to make those calls for him or herself. Um, on, on Shawcross specifically. So Shawcross hasn't always been, uh, the law of the land in Canada. It's really only come into... Sorry, the what? The law of the land. Oh, the law of the land. Okay. I thought you said law of the land correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the law of the land in Canada really only came into sort of the, um, the federal political sphere in the late 1970s. Um, but this is what people are referring to when they refer to the independence of the attorney general as uh, one of the constitutional principles of Canada or, or something to that effect. Um, it, it's the very about, part of our democracy. Is yeah, as, as any yes. rhetorical flourish has, uh, has often put it. Um, it's interesting to note, though, and this is where I think I need to take us a little bit away from the sizzle for just another second. You know, people come here for the stage. <laughs> That's the thing. Is that Jody Wilson-Rabel's title was... Minister of Justice and Attorney General. And, and in many situations, that and goes by unnoted. Um, but this is where that and is of particular significance, um, because the lumping of those two roles is not 
always the case. In the UK Mother Parliament, the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice are very different roles, with the Attorney General being most of the time sitting outside of Cabinet and not involved in Cabinet deliberations in the same way that our uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General is. And the reason for that is to be one step removed. Yeah, so is this person still like an MP... And, like, a political point. Okay, just to yes. clarify. Yeah. Very, very similar, but they are the chief lawmaker. Okay. Um, so Canada could theoretically appoint an attorney general and a minister of justice when Trudeau makes his cabinet next go-round, if there is a next go-round. Um, but the intent of that, structurally, was to divide the role of minister of justice from, essentially, the head of the uh, public prosecution service, or the, the prosecutors, Yeah. so that these decisions could be made Fully independently. Yeah. Well, prosecutors and, to be clear, like the various in-house lawyers, etc. Because it's worth noting, basically every government department has Department of Justice lawyers embedded into them, which the Attorney General is ultimately responsible for as well. Yes. So it, it's a division of powers that we don't have in Canada. I, I would make it... I would draw uh, a similarity with the Speaker. Yes. Um, where the Speaker, again, is a... Well, I mean, they're elected by their their peers in the House of Commons, but they are a elected MP who sits away from government, has minimal communication with government, and sort of ha- has a different dynamic. Can I correct myself very slightly? Yes. Uh, when I said that the... Uh, Actually, I, I take that back. No. When I said the Attorney General is ultimately responsible for the sort of departmental embeds... Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould herself has actually kind of walked away from that in um, certain cases where she said that in sort of unpopular kind of politically controversial cases involving the government, she has sort of said it's on the minister of that department to make those determinations and not herself, which I found interesting at the time. Uh, uh, but it, it is like, it seems to vary. Anyway, sorry. It's just, I was I thought of a specific case that where that was... Kind of that struck me as a bit odd. But actually, carry on. actually, now that I think of it, I, I take even more issue with that statement um, because that that hasn't always been the case. Every department used to have their own lawyers. It's yes. more in recent years that DOJ seems to uh, centralize lawyers and send them out. Yes. Well, yeah, they're um, all DOJ lawyers, but it just seems like the direction is still ultimately up to the minister of those departments rather than yes. Yeah, and so. and ministers retain a high degree of oversight. Yes. On Sorry, the yeah, goings to... on of their department and how their department is represented yes. in the court. Just wanted to walk my thing back. Carry on. Um, so yeah, all, all of that to say is the dynamic we have around the attorney general in Canada is reasonably unique um, in terms of Commonwealth countries, um, and particularly in comparison to Mother Parliament. We, can we not um, call her that <laughs> Mother? And that is a and that's a dynamic at play when we look around. Um, the conversations, the pressuring conversations that we're about to discuss yes, um, that may or may not have happened and all, all of the, the hubbub, the, the sizzle, if you will. So, back to the sizzle. The sizzle indeed. But you know what? You can't have a good steak unless you're sizzle because that means you're getting browning. The, the Mayar reaction. Mayar reaction is uh, the source of flavor, really. Correct. Carry on. Um, so, to go back to Shock Ross, he, he talks about... The attorney general would have to be a fool not to consult with his colleagues. Yeah. um, PMO, elsewhere. Um, But under no circumstances should his his or her colleagues pressure the attorney general and that the responsibility for the decision ultimately rests with the attorney general. Yeah, and that they cannot then duck it and say it's someone else's job. Yes, and yeah, the attorney general cannot shift responsibility uh, onto the shoulders of his or her colleagues. Um, 
But this is what makes the allegations, as reported in the Globe and Mail, difficult to parse um, because it's fundamentally around the perception of what constitutes being pressured. Right, and it's really a subjective one because pressure is hard to quantify. I mean, we obviously have pounds per square inch, but that does not really <laughs> apply to uh, to political pressure. And if the attorney general felt herself to be pressured, then I, I think we kind of just have to conclude that she was, right? Like, it really is a subjective determination. But, okay, but the... So the, this is where the, the next complicating factor yes. comes in. If the attorney general felt herself to be pressured... So goes um, the the conventional wisdom is that she should have resigned on the spot. Yes. um, Made her um, opinion known and uh, basically declared Shawcross, Shawcross, Shawcross. Yes. And and walked out the door. Um, And on the basis of this and the fact that she did not do this once upon a time. You could say, in fact, that her presence in cabinet speaks volumes. (laughs) We have, we have that day. <laughs> um, the, the fact that she did not do this was used in the legal analysis of it uh, thus far. I think of uh, Forsese's piece on his blog. Craig Forchese, as he is known. <laughs> where he says, oh, I'm less concerned. The prime minister disavowed it. Um, she didn't resign. Therefore, the pressure must have been within the... Man, imagine being a law professor, eh? <laughs> How <laughs> with, wild must Within be? the limits of what is acceptable. And I think he slowly started to walk that back a little bit. Yeah, that's probably for the best. Um, but what I think is um, worth belaboring here is that this isn't a television show. What, what constitutes pressuring someone... Um, maybe you felt about differently after you'd slept on it. Maybe you felt differently about it um, when you were demoted. Yeah. Um, what constitutes undue Indeed. pressure is very much yeah. in the eye of the beholder, and that. Well, yeah, that's what I was and that dynamic can change yeah. based on the context of where those eyes are. Yeah. Um, and so when you're in the attorney general's role, what perhaps is a collegial conversation with, uh you know, the principal secretary of the prime minister's office, not, not that we know that that happened, but just, just to, uh, throw that out. That has been, I think the, something that has been more or less said. We'll throw out one yes. of, one of the speculated, um, uh, or orders of events. The most beloved man in Ottawa. Um, is, you know, it, it begins to change and maybe you feel pressured after the fact, right? Yeah. The, the idea that this would have been black and white at the time is, is not, accurate the yes. the idea that I, I i don't believe i mean i mean correct me if i'm wrong but if you've ever been in the situation where you have a conversation with someone you sort of nod your head along and then you go back and yeah, you leave there, the room and you, you dwell reason, on yeah, it like there's kind of a reason high pressure sales tactics you know work <laughs> like it's you you go home with the car at the end of the day yeah, exactly right? so in the textbook, it looks good to say that, you know, the attorney general should run out of the room screaming, shawcross, shawcross, shawcross. But it's like, it's your job. Like, are you, how are you going to get home that day? It's like a lot of, no, but really, it's like a lot of like. You lose your ministerial car you immediately. You, it's just a lot of like details like that. that I can see why someone would be like, well, okay, that was kind of weird, but all right. Like, it's a good job being a minister, you know, like it is what it is. Most certainly. Um, and that's perhaps why the role of attorney general and minister of justice is a little more conflicted than having one or the other. Indeed. Um, so all, all of that is to say the fact that I, I don't take the fact that 
Um, she did not. Jody Wilson Raybould did not immediately resign yeah. as determinative that the Shawcross principle was not in fact violated. Yes, because people are not like most people are not law profs. Like it's just you don't like have android like reactions to external stimuli where it's like a one or a zero and you sort of like lose your head. Yeah, and your head explodes. So I mean, I mean that's sort of my take on how to parse it. Yes, I think that's fair. Politics is politics, as it turns out. It never, never ceases. It always to be. disappoints law profs, though. <laughs> well, a lot of people, I guess, but you know, especially law professors. So, and let, let me just loop this in um, to another anonymous store, uh, source statement, which is an, another one of the issues that came up here was a lot of uh, presumably liberal staffers saying off the record anonymous things to sort of prop up their position. And so it was sort of a lot of the worst types of access journalism. Yes. Um, where you had people off the record calling her a thorn in the government side as she was still sitting in cabinet. So that was a very dubious strategy. Yes. And perhaps... Well, especially because the credibility to a large extent rested on her still being in cabinet. As the prime minister said the other day, the fact that she is still here speaks volumes. And which I guess takes us to today's news. We are recording this on Tuesday, the 12th of February. And uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned from cabinet uh, in a letter to the prime minister last night. So this became public a little before noon today. Um, and we are now in a bit of an odd position where uh, right before we started recording, uh, the prime minister gave a hurt sounding press conference where he was aggrieved and confused by his former justice minister's decision to resign. I thought you were going to say made a Winnipeg uh, transit announcement. Also that, yes. Um Though, yeah, poor Winnipeg Transit. I think they're really getting <laughs> shortchanged today. Uh, we'll do a Winnipeg Transit episode sometime, too, to compensate. Uh, so, yeah, like, we are now at a bit of an odd position where the way forward is a little unclear. Uh, the Ethics Commissioner has announced in response to an NDP request that he will be investigating uh, the Prime Minister and others in his office for violating, potentially violating, I should say, uh, section 9 of the Conflict of Interest Act, which prohibits um, undue or what is exactly? It's like improper um, to uh, use their influence as a public office holder to improperly advance another person's private interest. There are friends and family provisions in that uh, section as well, but this is what the um, Conflict of Interest Commissioner decided to investigate. That, that sort of last section on an improper advancement of another person's private interest specifically. Uh Tomorrow, which is to say Wednesday the 13th of February, uh, the Justice Committee is ostensibly meeting uh, to discuss a motion to bring sort of some of the protagonists of this whole affair to testify. Though with the enormous winter storm currently pounding Ottawa, we are unsure if that will actually happen. Uh, last I heard, it is going ahead, but we'll see. And it does appear, um, based on uh, House, Father, uh, House Father's statements... Liberal Justice Committee Chair Anthony Housefather. ...that the liberals are likely to support... Or at the... least he is. I, I No. Well, I, I mean, uh, it's unclear the degree to which he is speaking for anyone Okay, else. let, yeah, let, let me, let me just clear the air, because the, the Prime Minister was asked about this during his uh, presser this evening. Uh, what Will you instruct the committee? Whatever, whatever. And the fallback line is, the committee is independent, it's the master of its own business. Yes. It's it's not. MPs, um, particularly government MPs, with the exception of Nate Erskine-Smith and Wayne Long. Mm, even Nate Erskine-Smith. <laughs> act uh, very much at the behest of the government. To think that... Depends on the issue, I'll be fair to him. Um, yes. 
Um, but in, in this case, in the most political issue that has ever challenged this government, yes. to think that this MP, that the MPs on that committee would not have received any direction from PMO or Justice or any of the relevant ministers' offices is unimaginable. Yes. Um, it, it's sort of just this, this fantasy that we, we like to continue to uh, propagate because it's convenient for the government of the day to not take accountability for the actions of their MP in shooting down yes. uh, often very relevant well, and interesting ethical inquiries. To give you an, an interesting example, our After recording, I decided not to use the example I originally used here. Sorry, back to your regular programming now. So, like, committee conduct is very much, like, even when there is a breach, the government will find a way to patch it. And it is very much, like, there is a lot of stage management. Like, it, it is just the reality of it. I mean, and that's not to say that there's no room for, for government MP, government side MPs to be independent and, you know, ask good questions and do good jobs on committees. It's just that they effectively know that their power to technically control what happens at committee comes with the responsibility of being accountable to a caucus and to their boss, who is the prime minister. Um, you know, I'd say boss, obviously, informally, but that is the reality that they face. So, yeah. Um, there's, I mean, and in the past, there have also been instances of uh, removal of MPs who are unlikely to vote in the way that they are um hope to vote or directed to vote from yeah, or, their committee or like as a on, punishment yes. for various other infractions yes on on the drop of a hat being removed in order to put someone in place who will vote in accordance with the party line yes um so i mean the the idea that this committee vote will be anything less than a reflection of pmo directive i think is incredibly dubious no for sure well um, unless they all like genuinely do decide to just like consequences be damned go for it which i don't know I, I, it's I, unlikely. I, I think I, I I struggle to think of an example of that happening. I, I don't think it's... We are a little bit in uncharted waters right now, so I don't want to preclude anything. I will preclude. You will preclude. Well, we'll sort of... I mean, like, either way, it's like we're not going to know what's in their hearts, right? So, like, it is kind of hard to say. But, uh, yeah. F- following orders. Yes. That, that's that's what's in their hearts. Very well. Um. Yeah, so to talk about the Prime Minister's presser a little bit more... Um. His lines were interesting. The, I'm disappointed she didn't tell me. Um, I think I'm going to make a little bit of a prediction now, even though I know that might be foolhardy. But the the fact that information did not rise to the ears of the prime minister himself, I think might be a little bit questionable. Um, I mean, often the historically we've known that the role of staff has been to shield uh the worst of it from the ears of the prime minister and to take the proverbial bullet for them as required yes and when did the prime minister know what you know like at which juncture is is like not a fun series of questions as stephen harper learned uh (laughs) it it is just like not a good place to be in so uh and uh, one one final point on the presser is you still see the prime minister um, very carefully watching his language and what he says. She didn't tell me about it in October. <laughs> uh, okay. Can I also say he is like he's or the, awful when he's acting aggrieved? Yes. Like com- he comes off as pouty and terrible. Like it's just it's a bad look. You're not wrong. No. Um, so, I mean, there is still a lot to watch. 
Um, Jody Wilson-Raybould has retained the Supreme Court, former Supreme Court justice, whose name eludes me right now. Fra- or hers was Cromwell. Not, not Labucan. Or Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. I get him mixed up with uh, the babe guy all the time. Who's, who's, what's the babe guy? I think also Thomas Cromwell. What's the babe guy, though? Like the James pig? Cromwell. Yes, the, the guy from the pig movie. The actor? Yes. I have no idea. Not who the was... pig. <laughs> James Cromwell. I have no also, idea. Oliver Cromwell. Just the whole series of good Cromwells. I don't know any of these. Sorry to Irish people who may listen to this show. I, I don't do names. Um, shit, what were well, we it's actually about? funny because uh, among the people that SNC Lavalin has has hired to represent them, sort of in in communications, both in in court and in the government, is uh, Frank Iacobucci himself, also a former Supreme Court justice. So we're just really getting to a battle of the of the titans here. Yeah, I mean there are. Um, an entirely new or an entirely different series of issues around the public um, I mean banding about Supreme Court justices well maybe this is the one good thing about the US system where they just they serve till death <laughs> like so you don't see them ever again it, yeah I mean it has similar issues to like the politicization of the military and using um, nonpartisan civil servants for backdrops or having generals endorse political candidates we in the actually United like, States. We actually like that as long as it's regimes. Um, any any of these things. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of live wires here. Yep. Um, the next big That's what's so fun about it. The next, just so many moving parts. It's great. The next big step beyond the committee vote, I think, will be um, a statement by Joe or further fleshed out statement by Jody Wilson-Raybould yes. in the coming days to weeks perhaps to properly vet a statement about what she can and cannot yes. say I, it is worth noting the political context of why she's retained counsel is not necessarily because she's going to launch a suit against the government but because her statement of her reasons for resignation are likely covered by uh, solicitor client privilege which has been the phrase of the week here in ottawa it, really it truly has yeah. so her ability to talk openly about how she feels aggrieved is very much in question. Yes. So she will be looking for guidance uh, to as to what specifically she can say that would fall within and, and or there, without of the scope. And there has been an undercurrent of calls to the prime minister directly to waive that solicitor client privilege so that she can make things clear. Yes, which yes. he has thus far neglected to do so um, or refused. Refused. Well, likely refused. Neglected. Stated <laughs> that probably he hasn't like not thought about it. Well, uh, in, in most recently in the press conference, he stated that he had asked the attorney general, the current attorney general, the current attorney general, to make a recommendation on that. So yes. I'm sure we'll never. Hear of that again we will see um so yeah i mean a lot of live wires this is certainly to to go back uh step back a second to the macro level i think it's safe to say this is the largest scandal um that this government has faced um it pairs well with historical tropes of the liberal party um in relation to corruption specifically corruption in quebec well snc leveling as well had a a peripheral role in uh ad scam Back in uh, the sponsorship scandal, so once upon a time, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just the same, same shit, different day. So it, allegedly, it, it certainly does harken back to that, and it pairs nicely with the um, Mark Norman trial, which has been ongoing and has led to a number of interesting, um, yes, allegations. the The trial, the defense uh, led by Mary Hennen, has been met with a very obstructive. 
um, Department of Justice that has not been well, very, very deep Department of Defense as well, and and Department of Defense that have not National been very Defense. forthcoming in providing a document. So that's been what the bulk of the testimony this far, uh, thus far, has been. Well, I believe the trial is not formally started in that case. It's literally it, just it's like, been hearings yeah. in regards to yeah. access to documents. <laughs> Um, but that has already seen, <laughs> that has already seen people like the chief of the defense staff, uh, Vance called to testify, um, high level political staff, uh, the chief of staff, to the uh, minister of national defense called to testify in relation to emails and what was sent, what was searched, what oh, wasn't. Man. We love a good email scam. Um, so it's, I mean, that one is certainly heating up, and there's very interesting parallels between the two. Indeed, there to are, say, well, a judge sort of dryly remarked the other day, so much for independence of the of the prosecution. To, uh, to note that those stories, I think, were perhaps wetting the powder a little too early as the public prosecution service uh, came out uh, with a clarifying statement that sort of de-linked I see. The, what people were speculating was connection and uh, uh, direction from PCO to the Public Prosecution Service. Um, the statement essentially clarified that it was um, them seeking input from PCO rather than PCO providing direction. I see. Um, which is, of, that does of seem course, to be an important difference. substantially more kosher. Yes. Um, but the problem was the emails in question were re- redacted, so... It, Who knows? Yeah, so <laughs> it, it opened itself up to speculation. So they're Gotta looking love, at de-redacting yes. those emails. Gotta love redaction. Um, so all of that is to say there is a lot going on. And Though, I think it's kind of worth being clear about this. It's really... Uh, like, this really could be huge, or it really could be not a whole lot at all. It's It's already huge. Well, no, I mean, like, in the sense that it is already politically very big, but in the sense of, like, it really might just turn out to have not been a big deal and that there has been a lot, a big deal made of it, right? Like, we just, we don't know yet, uh, but it will be interesting to see. I don't think there is anything the government can do that will deflate this. I, I don't think there's an option left on the table at this point. No, it really ha- it has to be like whatever comes out in the various investigations and, and committees and hearings and all these <laughs> things that we'll, we'll get at it. I just I, I think I can sort of envision a scenario where there's not much here. But like I think like the thing is, is it saying Canadians deserve answers is perhaps a cliche. But in this case, there is enough to suggest a lot of smoke that we should. Yeah, like Canadians genuinely do deserve answers. Let, let me present uh, a few quick scenarios. Uh, scenario one is lots of smoke, never find the fire. Yes. Um, for whatever reason, Jody Wilson-Raybo, bound by clients' lesser privilege, is never, never able to say what she truly is burning to say. Um, and thus, the investigations by the Justice Committee and by the Conflict of Interest Commissioner never amount to anything, but it certainly drags out the headlines for months and months and months to come. Which is, I mean... Um, disastrous for a government that's already kind of struggling with credibility there is the option of fire is found jody wilson raybould's um comes out with a statement uh thoroughly vetted by supreme court justice that says shawcross shawcross or yes former supreme court justice that says shawcross was violated um here's my accounting of events um and then there's jody wilson rabel who comes out and diffuses the whole thing although perhaps the least likely of yes. all oh i just think that that's like yeah I, I don't think that's likely i just wanted to flag that it is a possibility and says um shock ross was never violated i was treated well i 
was just tired of being at the center of a political firestorm and wanted to leave. Yes. Um, but despite the... I'm not writing this under duress. <laughs> despite the hopes and prayers of PMO issues managers, I suspect that's unlikely to be yes, the, uh, the I scenario think, that I think goes that forward. is also unlikely, yes, at this point. Yeah, so anyway, uh, it's been a fun week. Uh, it will continue to be, I suspect, and we will, I'm sure, discuss this uh, in the future as it develops. There's just a thousand angles to this thing, yes, um, which makes it very hard to explain and comprehend, um, which is why I hope we've done a reasonable job of it here. Um, please let us know if there was anything that was unclear or you'd like more information Unless you're on. Unless you're or... in which case, please do not. <laughs> just don't. It was black and white. She should have just resigned. Yeah, no, come on. Don't, don't come at me. You can, in fact, what I can say is that you can, you can miss me with that um yeah i mean that that's it we didn't get to the policy options paper that we wanted to talk about but maybe maybe that'll be for next you time. know i think it probably would have just been a little it would have been a little too chilled out for what was otherwise <laughs> a fairly energetic episode so another another time perhaps uh that will do it for us this week what was our beer tan i i enjoyed it i just i have no idea what it was um it, rigor mortis which from uh which is thematically chosen for the the topic uh today What's the, the thematic connection here? Is that the, some, something is dead the, and very stiff? The, the government's dying. I don't know. Okay. It was, you, you it was, it was, it was a stretch. Okay. So uh, what I was of, really hoping your imagination was more creative than that. Well, yeah. Anyway, it was, but I didn't want to say it on air. Jody uh, Wilson's cabinet career, maybe. Okay. All is, right. Is presently in rigor mortis. 20, sure. 24 hours afterwards. We're, we're, we're about there. Yeah, I suppose so. What kind of beer is it? Um, it is a Abbey Brown, I think they call it. Yeah, it was it the same one you had over the weekend? Or oh no, yeah, it is. Oh, that's really nice. I gotta say, it was like a, I think we were talking about this um, when we had it the first time. Actually, I guess is that a, it would be really good with like a like a roast beef sandwich on some nice like whole grain bread, some mustard and some onions. You know, a little bit of horseradish perhaps. So browns are among my favorite style of beer when they're done properly. Yeah, there's a lot um, of very mediocre brown out there. Yes, I think this is one that is done very properly. Good. Yes. Um, which makes it absolutely delicious. It's very sort of caramel and brown sugar. Um, like I said, you, you just want that beef sandwich. Absolutely, the, absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Dear Giselle Should have had it with the pulled pork, actually. is among my favorite brewers. I think they were just placed in the top 20 brewers in Canada by yeah. ratebeer.com. They are really or, good. sorry, in the world, rather, by ratebeer.com. They are a handy two-hour drive uh, from here in Montreal. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, their brewer, I think their main brewery is in Saint-Jérôme. I, I don't which care. Is, I don't, they have a beautiful little brew pub in do. uh, downtown Montreal. Oh, Saint-Laurent. It's great. It's very worth a visit. Fantastic. Yeah. And if you go, you have to get the Peche Mortel, which is their best beer by far. Peche. Peche Mortel. Yes. De- it's deadly, not a deadly peach. Yeah. De- <laughs> yeah. De- deadly sin. I have three of them in my fridge right now, chilling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they are very tasty. So that will do it for us this week. Thank you once again for listening. Uh, you can follow us at ShortPantsPod on Twitter.com, uh, the, the hell site. Uh, <laughs> I'll say. Anything else you want to add? I, th- I think we're pretty good, eh? No, uh, that's it for me. All right, goodbye, everyone. Bye.